all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Good morning. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Nursing and Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And joining me in the studio today is Dr. Crystal Lim, Assistant Professor of Psychology at UMMC. And today we are talking about the psychology of eating. That is why we eat what we eat and the way that we eat it. And so if you have a question or a comment or want to join in our conversation related to that, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. And my email is fit at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. It's Monday at Southern Remedy, and that means healthy and fit. I am your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Nursing and Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And joining me today is Dr. Crystal Lim, who is a clinical psychologist at UMMC as well. And she works in our pediatric obesity clinic, which I can imagine is a very tough job, but we're thankful that she's here to to help us out with that and thankful that she's joining me in the studio today to talk about a topic that I am absolutely fascinated with and come into contact with on a daily basis uh, working in lifestyle medicine. We are talking about the psychology behind eating and why we eat what we eat the way we eat it and who we eat it with because it's very, very complex with that. And I don't think as healthcare providers, we can truly do justice to the topic of obesity and overweight and even chronic illnesses like uh, diabetes and, and high blood pressure. If we don't think about why people are choosing what they're choosing and not in a punitive way, like, why did you eat that? You know, but really the psychology behind what is driving our behaviors. So good morning, Crystal. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And we've been talking, you know, we talk frequently about things because I enjoy speaking with someone who understands what it is that I'm talking about and struggling with. Um, But, you know, tell me a little bit about the Pediatric Obesity Center at UMC. Yeah, the Pediatric Obesity Center, we call it Wellness and Weight, um, treats kids 2 to 18 that have um, obesity and also tend to have um, other kind of comorbid medical conditions. So they might already have type 2 diabetes or 
be at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's myself, and then we have um, a pediatrician and a nurse practitioner trained in obesity medicine that sees patients there. And then we also have a dietitian that provides recommendations about eating um, and what types of foods people should should be eating more of or less of. Um, And then um, from the psychology side, that's where I come in and do assessments and treatment to get a better sense of what are the factors that are impacting eating um, or barriers that get in the way of kids and families eating healthier. And then we work to try to address those. And it's a team. And that's really what it takes because each member of the healthcare team kind of has their own special focus that they bring to it. And, you know, one person can try and do all of it, but we're never going to be able to hit on all the facets. And when we talk about overweight and obesity in kids and in adults, it's more than just, let me tell you what you need to eat. Uh, I mean, I love a dietitian. Some of my best friends Mm -hmm. are dietitians. um, And I use them all the time because we do have to tell people what we need to be eating more of and what we need to be eating less of. But we also have to help them operationalize that and and how do we do that and why right why do we want to do that you know that's what I try and find is the the why for someone you know what is it that's going to drive them to Mm -hmm. to make a change because just me saying you need to do this that doesn't that doesn't move behavior. Right. You know? on, on some level, we all know what's healthy oh, and yeah. what's unhealthy, and we're still not making maybe the best choices um, on a day-to-day basis. And so what um, I like to talk to families about is, yes, the dietitian provides recommendations and education about what's healthy. I like to talk with them about how do we actually implement that? Mm-hmm. How, how do we make it realistic? How do we make it sustainable? Because we know a big thing with Um, child and adult obesity is the maintenance of any weight loss. Um, And so how can we fit it into our busy lives and with the, you know, resources that families have available in terms of um, money and and other access to resources. And so really trying to make it realistic for them and that it's not all or nothing is that it's really a gradual process. Um, A lot of, um, behaviors and things that we do related to eating, it's not something that we can change over time. They've in some ways become habits that are really hard to modify. And so how can we set very small, realistic goals to make progress move in the right direction where these changes become a lot easier to implement and then you build kind of momentum? Yeah, they do. And, you know, I think folks, one thing that they, they just focus on the number on the scale when they're talking about getting healthy. And I don't even look at it to start with, you know, that's one of the very bottom end of the things I talk about in a clinic session is, is the weight loss, because I want to see the behavior change Mm -hmm. start to occur because when the behaviors change, the weight is going, is going to trickle off. Um, And I say trickle because it's not going to fall off. It doesn't melt off. It doesn't, you know, it, and anything that promises to melt fat off of you is just not true. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Um, And it, if you do drop large amounts of weight in a quick time frame, that's usually not sustainable. You're going to gain that back. And usually it's going to bring some of its friends over to play as well. Mm-hmm. And you're going to gain an additional five, 10, 15 pounds um, with that. And, you know, there's some real science and with the physio- physiological changes that are going on with muscle mass as to why that occurs. But what I'm more interested in is why do we feel the need that we, that we need to uh, use one of these quick 
fix mm-hmm. type of things, mm-hmm. you know, because they're not going to be sustainable. Um, if you've got questions or comments, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So you work mostly with kids, but you cannot treat a kid without treating their family because kids yes. do not live in a bubble. They That's live correct. within a family structure. And so it really is, um, and we've been talking a lot about how we can partner to get this uh, done more efficiently is is how we make it okay for the family to make this change together because it's going to take mama and daddy and brother and sister and all of those folks um, getting on board with this because, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not going to be good for the kid if, you know, little Johnny has to eat this plate of food and everybody else is having this plate of food. You right. know, it's not, right. not going to work that way, you know. And one of the things we get concerned about in clinic is that oftentimes kids who are obese or overweight, they already feel like they stick out. They may be being teased at school um, or in other places. And so we don't want them necessarily to feel any different. They already have kind of that low self-esteem. And so what we really encourage in our clinic and um, kind of research in this area really suggests that a family-centered approach is the most successful. Um, kids also pick up on mixed messages. You know, it's the, you know, do what I do, not just what I right. say. And um, so I've seen this in multiple families that I've worked with over the years that um, when everybody in the family can get on board with the changes, and I'm talking even extended family members, grandparents, you want them to be on board. Um is that kids are much more successful because everybody is supporting them and they don't feel like they're being picked on or singled out mm-hmm. um, in their family. Um, and we can all do better. Right. You know, yes. so even yes. if there are family exactly members, who, yeah, we can all do better. Right. So even if there are family members that may not need to lose weight, we can all be healthier with right. what we're eating. You know, um, again, it goes back to that. Don't just focus on the number on the scale. Mm-hmm. Some people are just thinner built Mm -hmm. than other people are and but you can still have a pretty unhealthy dietary pattern regardless of your size and so while it may not be showing up on the scale I bet it's showing up somewhere metabolically inside or psychologically with the unhealthy relationship with food you know that's what I kind of butt up against is the relationship that we have with food Mm -hmm. and why some foods are called bad foods and some foods are considered good foods. You know, what makes a food bad? What mm-hmm. makes a food good? You know, because I would argue that there's there's really not a bad food. There are foods that provide less nutrition for mm-hmm. us and there are foods that provide more nutrition for us, but as far as putting it in this category of I can't have that and if I do I'm a bad person, mm-hmm. which is what mm-hmm. I see patients do a lot, you know, um, that that's just a kind of a backwards way of, of thinking to me, you know, mm-hmm. food is food is just food, you know, we all need it to survive and, right. and live. Um, kids need it to grow and develop. And so that's something we are always balancing is kids still need nutrition and um, vitamins and nutrients for brain development and other um, aspects of their development. And so we don't want to impact that in any way. Um, it, and it's more about like, no food is off the table. It's more maybe just thinking about it in moderation. And I think the way that, um, you know, media images of food and the way that we, the words that we use Mm -hmm. really kind of get behind some of the thoughts that people have about food. Um, 
and then how that can impact our behavior um, and, and why then people feel guilty when they have that cupcake or right. um, those types of things. And so how do we help families kind of address and adults work together to address that and identify patterns so then we can try to start to maybe talk back to some of that those negative thoughts and right. those negative feelings that people have about food and, and hunger. Right. Because, you know, historically, if we're going to look back to, you know, when humans first started to eat, you know, we ate for a very defined reason. You know, we ate to live. You know, mm-hmm. it was, I have to go run around and kill things and, you know, do whatever it is I'm doing. So I've got to have food on board to be able to mm-hmm. do that. And of course, we still eat to live. You know, we still have to meet um, energy goals that we have to have. But the products that we have available to us in order to meet those energy demands are uh, vastly different than than they used to be. And, you know, some of that is good and some of that is bad. You know, there are convenience products out there that help busy um, moms and dads get dinner on the table. And then there are things that really have no nutritional value whatsoever, but can still be consumed every now and then as part of a, a healthy eating pattern. But it's, you know, why we choose one thing over another. And we can mm-hmm. talk about that things are expensive, you know, that mm-hmm. healthy foods are expensive because I hear that all the time. And they, depending on where you shop and how you shop, they can have a higher price range mm-hmm. than some of our um, packaged products do. But, you know, if you sat down a bunch of folks and you put an apple in front of them and a cookie in front of them, you know, and said both of these are free. But you can only have one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, what makes us reach for the cookie? You know, and some of that has to do with the perfect little combination of fats and sugars and things that are in those that light up different, you know, pleasure receptors for us. Because food is one of those immediate um, gratification type of situations, Mm -hmm. you know. And the perception could be like the cookie is going to bring me more of that pleasure. Right. And that's kind of what, why some people might choose certain foods over the other. Mm-hmm. Other people that might be more health conscious might say, well, the apple has all these nutrients and vitamins that kind of outweighs, you know, the pleasure I could get from an apple and right. or from a, cookie. from a cookie. And so there's, you know, personal variability. Everybody kind of is different in terms of their what choice they might make, but the the reasons behind those choices are also pretty variable and depend on your history with mm-hmm. cookies versus right. apples, um, for example, that um, like over time have shaped the views and thoughts that people might have about those different food choices. Um, so it's the longer that I'm in this field, the more complex these, oh, yeah. you know, it seems like a, a pretty... Um, easy choice to make. Yeah. Like just don't do that. You know, it's an easy choice, but it it is a lot more complex because then you also have the biological, like you mentioned the like neurotransmitters, Mm -hmm. areas of the brain, you have your hormones. Um, you know, when you see certain foods, certain hormones might be released or pleasure Mm -hmm. signals in the brain might be activated. So there's a lot on a biological basis that are, that's going on, but also on a psychological basis, there's a lot of thoughts, feelings about food that might impact our behavior. Right. And once we make that decision, like I'm having that cookie, right. you know, right. and you eat that, then the thoughts that are present 
after that, which I see a lot of folks then have very self-defeating thoughts related to that as I am bad because I chose to eat this cookie when the girl next to me ate the apple and she's thinner than me and clearly she's healthier than me and I'm going to eat some more cookies, you know, and that's just not how it is. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'm going to pick the apple. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm going to pick the cookie, right? you know, and you know, people often look at my plate when I'm eating, you know, or if we're, we have a lunch meeting or something, they're looking and they're like, she's eating the cookie, you know? And right. I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. eating the cookie. It's and, okay to eat and it it's okay to eat the cookie every now and <laughs> right. then, you know? Um, I guarantee you I enjoy that cookie. I don't just eat it for the sake of it, mm-hmm. it being there. Mm-hmm. I made a choice. And usually if I ate the cookie, I probably didn't eat the chips that came with the sandwich or something like that because right. I'm trying to balance, balance out it choices. out a little bit yeah. on there. Um, but even if you ate all three... As an isolated event, it's not something that needs to start this catastrophic thinking. And mm-hmm. so that's what we're going to talk about when we come back from the break is the, the thinking behind eating and the emotions that are associated with that and how we can kind of stop some of that negative self-talk that we have. So our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 And my email is fit at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after the break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and joining me in the studio is Dr. Crystal Lynn. And we are talking about the vast and confusing psychology behind why we choose to eat the things that we do and who we choose to eat them with and how quickly we consume those. If you want to give us a call today, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. And my email is fit at mpbonline.org. We would love to hear from you today and, and help us kind of wade through some of this. I would love to hear what drives you to choose some of the things that you choose. Before we went on the break, we were, were talking about all the negative emotions that get wrapped up in food. And I want to talk about about negative self-talk and about goal setting and how that relates to a healthy eating pattern. But we do have a couple of callers, and so I want to go talk to um, Sue in Beaumont this morning. Hello, Sue. Hello. <clears throat> I'd like to make a cu- couple of comments about yes, ma'am. obesity and overeating. Mm-hmm. I had a friend once who, uh, she was morbidly obese, but she would swear, I don't, I don't hardly eat anything. I don't eat this, I don't eat that, you know. And I said, well, there were no fat people in concentration camps, so it, whatever you put in your mouth is going to fat. <laughs> you're eating something, you know. Mm-hmm. If you don't eat it, if you don't put it in your mouth, you're not going to gain weight. 
but then I have seen people who really didn't eat very much, but they would their body would hang on to every every right. calorie that came in. They hit the body held on to it. Right. And then I saw uh, years ago I saw a show on the Learning Channel about this child who was born with a an appetite nobody could satiate. By the mm -hmm. time he was like three years old, he was barely able to toddle around. He was right. so fat. Right. So there's got to be some kind of genetic glitch in some human beings that just process food and calories differently, don't you think? There, there is definitely, there are disorders out there. Um, probably the one that you're speaking of in, in particular is a disorder where the kind of the hunger cues go away. And um, so they never feel full. And so you just eat and eat and eat. And that, you know, it's definitely one type of issue that we can be dealing with. And that, that takes a whole multidisciplinary team, not just a, uh, an obesity medicine type of team, but a genetics team and a, you know, a, a pediatric development team and all of that to kind of address those issues. Um, the kind of going back to what you initially talked about and folks that are overweight and say they don't eat a lot of things. There's kind of two things I would say about that. One is I very much encourage folks to keep um, a record of what they're eating, and at least initially, not every day. I don't log my food every day, but just so we can see where we're spending our calories because in particular, sometimes what I see, and I, I fell victim to it as well, is I didn't really perceive myself eating large meals, but I was finishing the things left on my kids' plates after they fit, you know, they'd leave like a chicken nugget or something like that. And then you'd pick it up and all those licks and nibbles and bites and all those things kind of add up to uh, more calories than we thought we were taking in. But when we don't fuel our body, well, our metabolism does slow down and you know, your metabolic rate is one of the things that, um, sets how much energy we burn, uh, just running our body, just the act of, you know, my heart's beating, my lungs are working, I'm making pee and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We burn a certain amount of calories to do that. And metabolic rate is one of those things that determines that. And so, uh, you kind of mentioned the term hanging on to every calorie and that's how I explain it to folks. So, um, you know, if food, if you don't eat regularly and you eat small, you know, amounts that are not meeting metabolic demands, then everything slows down because it thinks, you know, th thinks the food ran out, you know, is that what you see, Crystal? Yeah, that's what I see too. And I talk to families about that, um, about all the time, that all the time that they really need to eat, um, consistently because, the metabolism slows down, your body kind of goes into that starvation mode. So um, it's really important to eat consistently throughout the day. Those small meals um, throughout the day is really important. Um, and sometimes people might not feel hungry, but we still kind of encourage them to eat something healthy, um, like for breakfast. Um, and that is a way to jumpstart your metabolism and help with kind of reach your weight loss goals. Mm -hmm. well, um, the reason I <clears throat> mentioned it, genetic glitch, was because I've also seen people who are always skinny and they can eat they need as much as a truck driver and they don't gain an ounce they mourn you know I wish I could gain a little weight so there's got to be something genetic yeah. some abnormality in your genetics that makes some people that way yeah and we know that there are some genetic conditions but they're pretty rare um, like one in 25,000 so we think about that as yes that can occur and that that is something that some people do struggle with but that pre prevalence rate of genetic conditions doesn't really equate to the prevalence rates of oh, overweight right. and obesity of like 30 to 40 percent. Um, so genetic conditions are important um, and do play a role, but their role is thought to be more 
I would say, minimal as opposed to mm-hmm. kind of our eating and engagement and physical activity is playing a larger right. role. And so, you know, I'll just kind of sum that up and say, you know, we very much used to be calories in, calories out. That was kind of how we thought about things. And it's just so much more complex than yes. that. So while it might not be an identifiable genetic disorder that we can point to, we do know that each one of us burns calories at a different rate. And it's a very... Um, sophisticated biochemicals setup that's going on that allows that to happen. But, but by and large, even again, not looking at the weight on the scale, just thinking about being healthier from, from the nutrition that we're Mm -hmm. supplying our body. Mm -hmm. All right, Sue, thank you so much for that. We're going to go talk to um, Kim in Mobile. Good morning, Kim. Uh, Good morning. I just wanted to make a comment that um, several years ago, my husband was diagnosed with cancer and we start. We changed our. Um, we changed the foods that we ate, mm-hmm. and initially, I didn't find those foods so appealing because prior to that, we didn't have any young children or even older children at home, and we ate a lot of fast food mm-hmm. because it was convenient. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I have found is that what I like has changed Mm -hmm. to where I thought for sure, I mean, I did. I used to like, uh, I I won't name anything over the air, but I used (laughs) to like specific fast food. Right. And I would, and now I think of eating that and I I can, you know, say in complete honesty that I don't have any, in fact, I wouldn't want to eat that. And so I, it just was, it's just been amazing to me how my likes have changed just based on what I have been eating more of. And and you're absolutely correct. You know, um, that kind of drives back to, are we eating the things that we're eating out of habit? Um, And as those habits get built, those are the things that we crave and want. You know, we want a hamburger and French fries. But, you know, as our patterns change and our habits change, then those are not necessarily the things that we um, crave or want anymore. You know, I used to be, um, a very, like when I was growing up, I was a big, um, like regular soda person. You know, you had, had soda, you know, all the time. That's what you had. And, you know, I remember changing to diet soda and the, you know, the first couple of times I had it, I was, this is terrible. Why do, why, why is this making money? Well, who buys this? You know, it doesn't taste good. And then over time, I loved that. And I was the biggest Diet Coke addict in the world. I mean, I had to have one as soon as I got out of the bed. And then we ultimately found out that the artificial sweetener was what was triggering some of my migraines. And so I had to cut that out. And I thought I might die for a little while when I didn't have that. And now, you know, that craving for that is completely gone uh, from me. So it, it definitely is an interplay of kind of habit and and cravings mm-hmm. that build into all of that. So thank you so much for your call, Kim. We appreciate you giving us a ring this Monday. All right, we're going to move to Diane and Jackson. Good morning, Diane. Hey, how are y'all today? We're good. good. How are you? Good. Look, I wanted to go back to the previous caller who was mm-hmm. talking about some genetic things. Uh-huh. And, and it, it, a friend of mine had gastric bypass surgery right. and has had a couple gastric bypass surgeries because um, – but she was explaining to me that she has what's called brown fat, which mm-hmm. is the baby fat, which is supposed to go away, but it right. didn't with her. And so she just continues to gain weight. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of wanted you to talk about um, what 
the differences in the fats in your body and how they affect your metabolism. Right. And I'm going to hang up and listen to you. Okay, sure. So that is an excellent question. And it's, you know, one that we've kind of started to recognize the role in a little bit more. So we used to think that fat or adipose tissue was metabolically inert. Like, so it was just kind of extra stuff there, you know, extra padding for things and cushioning for things. But, you know, that's really kind of all it did. But, you know, of course, as metabolic medicine has progressed and the field of obesity medicine has progressed, we know that's just not the case. So there's, you know, there's subcutaneous fat. That's the fat that lives underneath our skin and, you know, keeps our bones from kind of poking out through our skin. And then there's visceral fat, which is the fat that kind of lives in internally and surrounds our organs and that in particular and in particular the fat around our abdominal organs um, is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease because we know that it's metabolically active it's doing things it's driving hunger there are in particular if you're not familiar with the hormone leptin that's a good one um, to look up and read about um, because leptin does a lot of the driving of the hunger sensation and the the need to eat certain foods so absolutely it's a a more than just a what I take in versus what I take out and if you've not had a chance to catch our show on um, bariatric medicine uh, I encourage you to go back to um, Southern Remedies website on mpbonline.org and look up that podcast because we talk a lot about how bariatric medicine is not just about reduction of of portion. You know, of course, portion control plays into weight loss and a healthy lifestyle, but it is not just about the restriction of calories with a bariatric procedure. It actually does start to shift some of the hormones that are playing and driving this hunger. Do you agree with that statement, Crystal? Yes, that's what I've heard of yeah, people yeah. say. And so it's a, a good show. We had a bariatric um, nurse practitioner who's um, certified in, in obesity management as well, um, who was on that show and really talked about that. And it's really eye-opening when you think about, um, you know, how folks are kind of shamed when they get bariatric procedures that, oh my gosh, they, they weighed so much they had to get part of their stomach cut out. And that's not all all that it is um, wrapped up to be. Absolutely, if they eat too much, they won't feel good. But it does reset some of those um, those mm-hmm. hormone levels and allow them to, to not be plagued by hunger. Because being hungry is not a good feeling, you know. And if you if your hunger cues are messed up, you're just trying to fix that that pain and it's not a pain you can see on the outside but a pain that's on the inside and so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll talk more about again that negative thinking related to food and really try to focus in on how to set some goals but we would love to keep hearing from you today our number is 1-877-MPB-RING and my email is fit at mpbonline.org we'll be back in just a few This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Josie Goodwell, and you are listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. My guest today is Dr. Crystal Lynn. She is a clinical psychologist with our Pediatric Obesity Center um, at UMMC. And we've been talking about the psychology behind eating and how it is simply more than what we put in and what we put out. Of course, that does affect things, but there's a whole range of emotions and behaviors that are tied to the foods that we choose to eat versus the foods we choose not to eat and how quickly we consume them and all different factors that roll into having an overall healthy relationship with food. And so that's what um, I really try and focus on with clients of mine is a healthy relationship with food. And some of that comes in with um, the thoughts that we have about foods. And we've talked a little bit about not putting foods in a I'm a good food, I'm a bad food kind of thing. I tend to put foods in a this is a group I should eat more of and this is a group I should eat less of, not that I should eat none of. It's just the way that I tend to, to think about it. Because in the end, if I'm putting more of the, I need to eat more of these foods on my plate, then there's usually less room for the foods right, that I don't right, need exactly. to have as much of. Um, and it makes it less of that punitive nature mm-hmm. of, I can't have this. It's, I can, but I should have these things first, you know, that kind of thing. And so I want to talk about goal setting uh, a little bit and how we do that. Um, when we're talking about goals in general, you know, smart goals are one of the things that we talk about and not that any goal is a dumb goal. That's not what smart means. It stands for some things like specific and measurable and achievable and realistic and time oriented. Because what I hear folks say is, um, I want to lose weight. Okay. How much weight do you want to lose and in what particular time frame? Because that's going to shape whether we're ultimately successful or not. Right. So I want to lose 100 pounds in three months. Not realistic. Not realistic. No. And, you know, then when we don't hit that goal, we wind up with all this negative right. talk that we have mm-hmm. for ourselves. And we'll talk a little bit more about that negative talk in just a second. But I do want to go um, to Gulfport and talk to Frank. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you today? I'm great. Um, the main purpose for my call is I kind of hate seeing the calories in, calories right. out thing get thrown under the bus all the time. Okay. Because people end up taking the message that calories don't matter, and at the end of the day, energy balance is the only thing that matters. Mm, you know, I would... I I hear you. I would disagree slightly in that the quality of the calorie is going to matter as much as the quantity of the calorie. Um, This is from the perspective of somebody who took themselves over over the course of three years from a BMI of 30 to 23. So I did it slow, which I think is good. That is. That is very, very good. And I... uh, switched from whatever I wanted to eat to all whole foods, and I started to exercise, so I guess I did... You did all those things correctly. Yes, (laughs) you did all three of those things correctly, both sides of the equation. I continued to do those things, and it's continued to stay at bay, Mm -hmm. but when I start to creep up, 
I go back to counting calories and paying closer attention to what I'm eating and how yep. much I'm burning. And, right. and that's worked for me. And, and you're doing that correctly because it does. So not saying calories, the actual number doesn't matter, but what has driven folks when they focus just on that is, well, I can eat this amount of calories of just bacon and I will be, be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, when I would rather see somebody consume those calories from some fruits and vegetables and have some bacon sprinkled in there if that's the mm-hmm. food that they um, want to consume. So we definitely look at the number, but we have to look at the quality of what is going in um, as well. So thank you so much for that call. And I'm very pleased to hear that you were able to make a healthy lifestyle change that has affected not only your weight, but it sounds like your overall um, health as well. All right, let's go to Pike County and talk with Bob. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Can you hear me all right? I can. Okay. I'm driving. So. That's all right. We're glad you gave us a call. Oh, thank you. Um, one thing that was was on my mind was the market-driven social mm-hmm. psychoengineering behind right. much of this. Well, uh, for example, there's a, a nationwide company out there that puts prepared food in a meal and tells kids it'll make them happy. <laughs> puts it in a box and tells them it'll make them happy. I hear, I feel you. Well, I mean, we're human beings. We're susceptible. Mm -hmm. We want to believe what we're told. Right. So we're marketed. We're targeted for marketing. We're told this will make us happy. That will make us happy. And it wasn't that long ago that that one parent of the family stayed home and prepared healthy food from scratch, locally grown or, or their own raised. And it was healthy food. And then the family sat down together at the table and ate. Right. Right. But now, I passed by a restaurant not too long ago, walked, walked by a restaurant, looked in the window, saw what appeared to be a mother, father, and three kids. Mm-hmm. They all had their heads bowed. And I said, great. They're, they're doing something together as a family. And then I realized that each one was looking at their cell phone. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were there, but they weren't together. Right. So anyway, I, I just wanted to bring in the marketing and oh, yeah. social engineering aspect mm-hmm. of it and see what you thought. Yeah, so, I so think that's all. And and marketing, like you're saying, is is a big impact on um, kind of the cravings that we might develop. Um, you know, kids pestering us for certain types of foods that are advertised. Um, and I talk to families about that all the time um, as being something to watch out for, because sometimes people think they're making a healthy choice right. by the way that food is marketed. And that's actually not the case. And my best example of this is a package of Skittles that said this was a good source of vitamin C. And, you know, so I bring that up with families that, okay. So is an orange. Right, <laughs> exactly. Like, would you believe that on a on candy, that that's right. actually a good source of vitamins? Right. Um, that's, you know, really, we have to be a little bit, think a little bit more critically about how foods are marketed to parents and to children um, when we're making choices right. about foods we're buying for our families. Yep. All right, Bob, thank you for that call today and giving us a call while you're driving. And, you know, I agree um, with with Crystal. There is, um, sorry about that. There was a little feedback. Um, I agree with Crystal that there's, you know, so much related to the marketing of things, both in a good and, and a bad way. Um, again, we don't want to pick... Um, 
again, putting things in a negative light. And so that if we go to one of these fast food places and have this food that we're suddenly, you know, evil and we've harmed our children, um, you know, we don't want to do that consistently every day, um, mainly from a pocketbook standpoint, Mm -hmm. that would be uh, super expensive to to eat in some of those places every day with the amount of food that my kids can put down in one of those places. My 10 year old, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to need another (laughs) job uh, to pay for all the things that he eats. But you know, think about seeing a commercial on television where the food is, you know, presented in a beautiful way mm-hmm. with cheese dripping down it. And, you know, yeah. it will make your mouth fill up with spit. It sure. just really will, yeah. you know. And that's a conditioned response to that because we know how that's going to taste. Mm-hmm. But I would say take that back to actually paying attention to your food when you mm-hmm. receive it and taking your hunger cues from that, right. you know. And and how the messages we see are very unrealistic. You right. know that dripping cheese is not what that sandwich looks. It's like. not what it looks like when you actually get it from a fast food restaurant. Right. And like, so, where, where starting to to realize that what I'm seeing and what actuality is mm-hmm. is very different, and yeah. um, kind of talking, being able to talk back to some of those cravings in a more positive way. Right. Like that's not what that's going to taste yeah. like. It's not going to taste as good as it's it looks. It's going to taste salty. You know, because <laughs> that's that's what it tastes like. All right, let's talk to uh, Jesse and Madison. Good morning, Jesse. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. Good. Um, here's what I've got going on. Uh, I've been trying to get my weight relatively under control for mm-hmm. a good couple of years now. And my, my issue is um, I have uh, both major depression and severe anxiety mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. When I'm depressed, I usually lose all sense of appetite, but when I have high anxiety issues, I can't help but I'm a bit of a stressful eater. And I was wondering anything you might recommend for either to help curb my appetite whenever I'm stressed out or whenever I'm depressed, uh, make me want to eat. Right. Mm -hmm. Jesse, are you, is your anxiety and depression being treated? Um, with therapy, yes. Okay. Therapy. No medications at this point? Uh, not at this point. Okay. No. Okay. All right, Crystal, I'm going to let you take it because that is your specialty. And then I'm going to piggyback on um, with my thoughts. Yeah. So I think um, kind of back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier in terms of the times that you're depressed and not eating as much, that might be times to get yourself activated and actually kind of schedule meals um, for you to have. So your metabolism will, will still be kind of steady, even though you're emotionally not um feeling like you want to eat. Um, in terms of the dealing with the anxiety and kind of the stress eating, um, I know Josie wanted to talk about the kind of goal setting and, mm-hmm. and also keeping track of what you are eating. So, um, keeping track of, um, the, your feelings and then your food cravings and what you actually eat and how you feel afterward might be a good way to, get an idea of, of the pattern in your anxiety symptoms, the foods you end up eating, the way that you feel afterward um, as a way to then you can talk with your, your counselor or therapist about how to change some of those cycles um, and, and how to maybe develop other coping skills that you can use when you feel intense anxiety or in, have a lot of stress. Um, so instead of eating, what are other coping skills you can do that, that might be, you know, completely avoiding food that might 
mean you make a healthier choice. That might mean you um, do relaxation or deep breathing or other types of anxiety and stress management techniques. That might mean you engage in physical activity. Um, So finding what would work for you as a way to kind of break the cycle of the stress and anxiety leading you to eat um, would be something I would consider kind of bringing up and talking with your counselor Mm -hmm. about that. I agree with all those things. Um, You know, as a um, medical, as a, as a, a nurse practitioner, I would tell you, you know, don't necessarily discount pharmacotherapy, um, as a way to help with anxiety and depression. Some folks need it for a long term. Mm-hmm. Some folks only need it, um, kind of when they're in this, this cycle and, mm-hmm. and need some help resetting that chemistry that's going on in there. And then they're able to come off of that with continued therapy. Um, but when, when anxiety and depression is kind of all consuming, which it's sounding like it, it it can be for you, it is very, very hard to establish a healthy lifestyle pattern, Mm -hmm. um, because all your energy is focused into how to feel well. Um, you know, and I think it's something that a lot of folks struggle with because a lot of those symptoms are not visible on the outside. Mm -hmm. You just don't feel Mm -hmm. well and have the energy and the desire to want to make these changes. And Um, a lot of times motivation is, is also a really hard thing, especially when we're depressed, where our motivation to even eat or get out of bed is so low that sometimes the pharmacotherapy can even help us kind of make those first initial steps and be ready maybe to make some more changes. Um, and then, and and there's so many new medicines, you know, I had, um, a client this past week who was like, well, you know, I had a friend who got addicted to pills and I don't want to be like that. Well, that's benzodiazepines. That's, you know, your Xanax and your Valium and those kinds of medicines. They are better meds out there for anxiety and depression now that's not just treating the symptom but treating the underlying physiological changes that are going on with that Um, the other is I would say set yourself up for success so if you know that this is a cycle you're going to be in you know I have this depression depressive cycles and then I have these you know anxious cycles where I want to eat all the things don't don't bring the bad things into the house, you know, so don't bring the honey buns and the chips and the, that kind of stuff because you're going to eat them. So instead have, you know, healthier options in, in the house that so when you have a desire to eat and munch, that it's going to be a more nutrient dense, less calorie dense option for you in that perspective. Um, another thing I find very helpful in folks dealing with lots of anxiety is journaling and worry journaling in particular. So instead of reaching for that food, reach for that pen and sit down and write um, through what's going on and the the worry that you've got going on through that. There are apps out there that work very well for that as well. And just a good old plain old piece of paper works very well for that um, as well. So I hope some of those tips helped you out there, Jesse, and uh, kudos to you for asking and wanting the help. That's the first, you know, the first really step in getting, getting better is asking for help. It it sounds like you've done a great job of like self-reflecting and Mm -hmm. kind of already know kind of what your patterns are, which a lot of times people have trouble even identifying that. So, um, you're making great progress and, um, I just encourage you to consider, you know, other things that might be helpful. All right. Have a great day. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Um, so we've only got a couple minutes left. Um, we're going to take a last quick, quick break. When we come back, we'll kind of wrap things up. And I want to talk a little bit about um, one of my favorite things to do when setting goals when we come back with Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and my guest today has been Dr. Crystal Lynn, clinical psychologist at UMC. And we've been talking about why we pick the foods we pick and the psychology behind eating. We've had lots of great callers today that have um, prompted lots of discussion about um, how we eat and how we should eat. And the thing we want to leave you with before the end of the show really is that goal setting focused on behaviors. So oftentimes we give ourselves very hard and fast goals related to our weight. Um, And I would rather see you focus on the goals related to your behavior. So was it that you were drinking three sodas a day? And our goal is that we back down to two sodas a day. Mm Because guess what? You're healthier. You know, it's not black and white. It's not I drink sodas and I'm unhealthy and Mm -hmm. I don't drink sodas and I'm healthy. It's a, a continuum of that. And so if you're consuming less soda than you were before... Ultimately, that's a healthier behavior outcome from that perspective. Would you agree, Crystal? Yes, I would agree. And I, you know, we've talked a little bit about keeping track of what we've been eating. And so that can be a good starting place for us to be able to make realistic goals, set realistic goals. Is if I know my baseline, I, I drink three sodas a day. If I want to gradually cut back on that, that's my starting place. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to cut back from three to zero in like one day, but I'm going to do it gradually over maybe the course of a few weeks um, or even months for some right. people. And right. so really trying to, one, it's important to get a sense of where you are now um, and then to set realistic goals for yourself. Um, you know, what would you, instead of having that third soda, what would be something that right. you'd replace it with? So really trying to think through Um, your plan of how to implement the goal that you would have, I think is also really important. Absolutely is. In uh, lifestyle clinic, we give folks a nutrition prescription. And so I usually put on there what our behavior is Mm -hmm. currently. So Mm -hmm. right now we're drinking three sodas. What our target behavior changes. So within the next two weeks, we're down to two sodas sodas. per day. And then in the third column of that prescription, it's my plan to do this. And so it's, you know, I'm going to add, a glass of water, mm-hmm. or I'm going to add a glass of milk mm-hmm. or something that's going to give you something different than what the, the soda right. was giving you. Or I'm not going to do anything with my drinks. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, get up and go for a walk or mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, watch a movie, something that is taking uh, the place of that third soda, um, which I think is an important part of not just setting goals, but developing mm-hmm. the plan to help you meet those. And uh, I think this is partly why some of this can be so hard to do is because we set goals that are not realistic and then we don't have a plan for how to actually implement it. It's just zero to nothing. Right. And, um, the goal rapidly, right. And the goal (laughs) of weight management is not have nothing. You need something in place of that. So, um, really trying to be thoughtful about what we, what our plan is to help us achieve that goal that helps us feel like we were being successful and that we're not a failure or I'm not having the bad food that we talked about earlier. Um, so more this helps us feel like we have some control and that we have a plan that we can easily implement. Um, it's not overwhelming, um, and can really help people, um, start to make progress to reach their and so one of the, goals. you know, you can, however you want a food journal, if you choose to do that, you know, one of the things that I always include at the bottom of mine is plan for improvement mm-hmm. so that I can look at my day and see the areas that I may not have hit exactly where I wanted to hit and make a plan to do better tomorrow. Not, not beat myself up about what I didn't get right today. So that was a quick old hour we yeah. had there talking about such a complex topic. And I know I'll have you back to talk about it some more, but thank That's you great. for joining me today. Thank you for 
inviting me. And, and thank, to all our callers. Yeah, that's right. All our callers and listeners. If you didn't get a chance to give us a call today, you can send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. And remember that Southern Remedy is on every weekday at 11. So be sure to tune in for a different host and a different topic every day of the week. And I'll see you back next Monday on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit.